I have a couple of questions for you to start off this morning and just take a moment to think about these. Um, sometimes it might seem like it's a quick answer, but it's really not. Um, the first question is, who are you? I mean, really, really, who are you? What is your identity? What, what do you allow to define you? What do you allow to tell you what your identity is and define you? We're going to take a look at all of that this morning. Let's start off with a couple of definitions. Um, definition for define is to state or describe exactly the nature, scope, or meaning of. So if you're going to define something, you have to be able to fully understand it because you're exactly describing the nature, scope, and meaning of something. And then identity is the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. So in some ways, def define and, and, and identity are similar and interchangeable. In other ways, they're a little bit different. Um, so when we're looking at this this morning and thinking about what defines you, I've called this message, You Defined, because it's very clear in Scripture who you are, and we'll get to that a little bit later in our message. It's not as complicated as we try to make it out to be, uh, and we'll take a look at that. Let's start off... Before we get into what actually defines you, let's talk about a few things that don't define you because I think it's important to know what doesn't define you and what you shouldn't allow to define you before we get into what actually does. Our culture tells us a couple of things um, about defining ourselves, right? It always tells us, don't let other people define you, which is, which is good. You define yourself. But that's wrong. You don't define yourself. Um, Frederick Nietzsche is a, is a uh, well-known psycho uh, psychologist, um, philosopher. He said, we don't know ourselves. We knowledgeable people. We are personally ignorant about ourselves. Can you honestly look at yourself and say that you know everything about yourself? Can you really honestly say that? Now, you should be the one that knows the most about you, right? But that's not always the case. How many times, how many of you are married? How many times has your spouse showed you or talked to you about something about yourself that you didn't know and you didn't realize and you didn't see before they mentioned it or your kids showed you something about yourself or you get into a situation and you react a certain way and you find out something about yourself that you didn't know was there and you didn't know was true. Um, that happens quite often. Scripture actually talks about this a little bit in Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says the human heart is the most deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So we don't even know the depths of ourselves, the depths of our depravity, the depths of how bad and sinful and deceitful our human hearts, our human nature can be, we don't know about ourselves. We learn new things about ourselves all the time. We're not even the same person now that we were five years ago. 
right? Because you've changed, you've grown, you've moved on into different areas. You're not going to be the same person you are now five years from now. And that's not a bad thing. You need to be able to change and, and you need to be able to grow. But we're not the same people and we won't be the same people in the future. Now, the interesting part about this is there are some parts about our identity that we do choose. For example, I'm a geek and I love all things geeky. And, and I, you know, I love the, the Marvel and the, the DC universes, Star Trek, Star Wars. I'm a big Doctor Who fan. If it's, a, if it's something that geeks like, I probably like it. And that's something that I've been able to myself choose whether or not I like those things, right? And I can set that as part of my identity that I'm, that I'm a geek. I'm a big sports fan, too. Um, I love watching football, both NFL and, and college. And so that's, that's part of who I am, too. I'm a, big, I'm a big sports fan. But the core of our identity is too deep and too ingrained for us to, to choose that. We can't choose that core of our identity, who we really are deep down inside. We don't choose that. So you do not define you. I know that might step on a few toes this morning and it's contrary to what our culture teaches us, but you do not define you. Something else that does not define us is our family of origin or childhood. You cannot choose which family you were born into or the experiences that you had growing up. Some of us had really good childhood experiences. We were born into a good family. Some of us were not. Some of us had really bad childhood experiences. You didn't get to choose that. You didn't get to choose who you were born to. You didn't get to choose those childhood experiences. I had, um, I had a great childhood. My parents are here this morning, and I, I was born into a Christian family. I never, ever questioned whether or not my parents loved me. They always were there to support me, always loved me, um, taught me about God growing up, taught me to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I had a great childhood, but it wasn't all roses. We, we had sometimes uh, some financial difficulties, let's say, Growing up, I remember uh, for a, a good chunk of my childhood, my father was the pastor of Garland Baptist Church. Uh, they didn't pay him a whole lot. As you might imagine, a small country church in, in, in uh, central Maine can't afford to pay a pastor much. Now, he did work at the Sheriff's Department of Skadikos County as well. But we, we, had to, we had to rely on other people to get, to get by sometimes. I remember getting those big blocks of, I call it the government cheese. It was the American cheese. It was the big blocks of, I actually really like that. We used to cut off hunks of it just for a snack. Um, and then as you get older, you start to find out some things about when you, when you were growing up that you didn't know. For example, you know, my parents tell stories of times that we would be driving along in the car and we needed gas and there was no money for gas. And so we went on fumes and went further than we really should have been able to go. So even though I had a really, really good childhood and had a great family, the, the, and everything wasn't all roses, um, you can't choose that. Let's take a look at some, some, some more famous people that you might not know had a struggle growing up. Think of, think of Charlie Chaplin. Now, Charlie Chaplin spent most of his childhood in workhouses and in pauper schools, and in those days, 
that, that was poor. Poor was poor. Um, you were in a workhouse, you worked all day long, very hard physical labor as a child. And he would work in those workhouses. Um, his mother was periodically committed to insane asylum. So think about that. As a child, your mother's not even there a lot of the time because she's, she's in insane asylums. However, by the age of 30, he was the biggest star in the world at the time. He ended up being awarded with three Oscars, the French Légion d'Honneur, and he actually even received a British knighthood. And that was all, all of those humble beginnings and the trouble that he had as a child. He didn't let that define who he was, and he grew to be all those. Oprah Winfrey, I don't know how many of you might be Oprah fans. Oprah Winfrey began life in poverty in rural Mississippi. She was sexually abused by several family members and severely beaten as a child, so she had a rough childhood. She ran away from home when she was 13 years old. But she didn't let that past define her. She would go on to revolutionize American television and chat shows, and she had what's referred to as a confessional emotional style, and she really was able to, to um, identify with and, and, and get uh, in a good relationship with her people that were on the show. Her current net worth right now is $2.6 billion. So she went from very humble beginnings, but she didn't let that keep her there, and she grew. Michael Orr, speaking about being a, a sports fan, Michael Orr was born in, in Memphis, Tennessee. He was the youngest of 12 children. The family was impoverished, and that was because his mother was a drug addict, and his father was in and out of jail. So you can imagine growing up in that kind of a home. He often spent time in the foster care system. A lot of time was spent in the foster care system, and he was homeless for a while. So it was pretty bad for him. However, he went on to have a great college football career at Mississippi and a very successful career in the NFL. He played for eight seasons and even ended up winning a Super Bowl with the Baltimore Ravens. You may have seen the movie, uh, The Blind Side, it was a 2009 movie, and that was about his life. That was the life of Michael Orr. So he didn't let his family of origin and his childhood experiences define him. So your family of origin and childhood do not define you. So that's something else that does not define you. Something else doesn't define you is your career. Many tend to define themselves by, by what career they have. And, and there's a term that psychologists have called enmeshment. Enmeshment is a situation where the boundaries between people become blurred and individuals, uh, individual identities lose importance. And there are some psychologists that believe that same thing happens with people with their career. That you become enmeshed with your career and it becomes so a part of your identity that anything outside of that loses importance. And, and it actually, you, you allow that to define you. So much so that there are people that when they lose a job, it devastates them. And it's not just because of the financial impact of that and trying to take care of yourself and your family, it's because that's what they've identified with. That's their identity. That's, that's what they've defined themselves as. There are people that put off retirement for years and years and years because they don't know what to do with themselves afterwards. They don't know who they are outside of their career. They don't know who they are except for what they do for work. So that, that idea of enmeshment and getting too in, involved in that 
it's not a good thing. Um, a woman by the name of Jana Koretz wrote in the Harvard Business Review, she said this, while identifying closely with your career isn't necessarily bad, it makes you vulnerable to a painful identity crisis if you burn out, get laid off, or retire. Individuals in these situations frequently suffer anxiety, depression, and despair. Lisa Blacker wrote on the Good Men Project on an article on that website, when a man's occupation is a big part of his identity, he seems to feel, as some have expressed to me and others I have observed, fear and anxiety if his role is at risk or of being eliminated. My observation has been that this is usually unrelated to the fear of not being able to provide for dependents. Instead, this fear is about losing one's identity and, perhaps, having to redefine oneself or perish. And then Franklin Mass, in, in another article on the Good Men Project, wrote, For all men who seek to find the balance, for the men who want to excel at what they do, who want to be good fathers, good husbands, good providers, and good companions. Keep in mind that you don't have to be what you do, but by no means is what you do insignificant. But you can be more. Be more than your job for the sake of your own soul, your own sense of self, your own spirit as a man. So it's important, especially as, as, as men, as we tend to be more like this, that we don't let our careers define us because your career does not define you. How about salary or socioeconomic status? A lot of people let that define them and become their identity. Um, you've heard the phrase keeping up with the Joneses, right? So that you're, 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 you're always comparing yourself to other people and you're always trying to get to some level that you feel like once you've attained that level, you'll be happy and you'll have made it. And what usually happens, you want more. It's not usually, you don't, you don't get happy when you get to that level, you want to go to the next one. And the Joneses become the next couple over here or the next family over there. You guys, uh, have, maybe many of you have heard of Dave Ramsey. Um, I, I, I like a lot of what Dave Ramsey says and we follow his, his advice um, with our own personal finances. But here's what he says about the Joneses. You've met them before. Actually, they're the family living like no one else, only a few houses down from yours. Mr. Jones drives the Bentley. Mrs. Jones drives the Mercedes. Their house is picture perfect. Their yard is the best in the neighborhood. Their children are so polite they make the Von Trapp kids look like heathens. The Joneses are the envy of social media. They throw the best parties, drive the nicest cars, and have big screen TVs in every room, sport the latest smartphones, go on the most Instagram-worthy vacations. But the question is, how can they afford it? Even more important, is life just about keeping up with the Joneses? Want to know the truth? The Joneses are broke. That's B-R-O-K-E with a capital B. So just keep in mind those people that you're trying to keep up with, their life isn't as ideal as it looks. It's not all as nice as it seems. Um, so trying to keep up with the Joneses can be a very dangerous place to go um, Proverbs 13, 7, and, and, and uh, I like the way the message puts it. He's, it says, a pretentious, showy life is an empty life. A plain and simple life is a full life. In Ecclesiastes 4, 4, also in the message, then I observed all the work and ambition motivated by envy. What a waste, smoke, and spitting into the wind. 
And then Rachel Cruz, who, who also is, is actually Dave Ramsey's daughter and, and, and works with his um, organization. Uh, she has a, a book titled Love Your Life, Not Theirs. And in it, she says this, had to come to terms with the fact that I was caught up in comparisons. I was chasing someone else's life instead of enjoying my own. I was letting someone I had never met influence not only how I was going to spend my money, but how I was going to live my life. So don't do that because your salary or social economic status does not define you. How about political affiliation? That's a big one now, isn't it, in our society? Some people really get their sense of identity from whichever political party they belong to or whoever they vote for, and that becomes who they are and that becomes all they are. Um, you see that in, in, in utter devastation they have when, when their side doesn't win, and it's like the, the world is ending. Um, it's important to, to understand that the issues are important. It's, it's not that politics are not important because there's a place for them and they are important. But it's also important to understand that someone who thinks differently than you do about the issues or votes for a different candidate, they're not your enemy. That, that, that's, and, 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 and that's not you against them. They just have a different opinion than you do. The reasons that people think and vote the way, they, the way that they do are, are very different and very deep. And if you ever have a chance to talk with somebody that's on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, you'll start to understand why they think the way they do and why they vote for the people they vote for. It doesn't mean you're going to agree with them, and that's fine. But you start to understand them, and you start to understand that there are reasons behind that. Maybe it's part of their experience in their life. Maybe it's, it's because they see a different side of it than you have been able to see. They have a different viewpoint than you do and you, that you can't see. Um, regardless of whatever it is, they're not, they're not your enemy. They simply think differently than you. So our country right now is so divided. And it would be nice if we could just set that aside and agree to say, OK, you think differently than I do. You have a different opinion on whatever this issue is. Or you voted for this candidate. Well, I voted for that candidate. OK, let's just move on. It's incredible to me how many people allow that to destroy friendships, people that are friends for years and years and years that all of a sudden stop talking to each other because of who they voted for, or family members that don't want anything to do with other family members because of how they feel about certain issues. Your political affiliation does not define you, and it does not define that other person. How about what other people think or say about you? That's a big one. There are people that don't like you. I'm sorry to break that to you, but there are people that don't like you. I'm sure there's a lot of people that do, but there are people that just simply don't like you. They don't know you or understand you. And, and often when they don't like you, it, it, it often can be a misunderstanding of something. They don't really know why you did something or that you even did something or, or, or who you really are. They just make a quick snap judgment based on something and they don't like you because of that. But Les Brown is a motivational speaker. He said this, he said, don't let someone else's opinion of you become your reality because they may not know the whole story. So don't let what someone else says or thinks about you really 
be your definition of you. Luke chapter 6, verse 26, again in the message, puts it this way, there's trouble ahead when you live only for the approval of others, saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth contests. Look how many scoundrel preachers were approved by your ancestors. Your task is to be true, not popular. Proverbs 29, 25 in the message says, the fear of human opinion disables. That's pretty, pretty strong wording. The fear of human opinion disables. Trusting in God protects you from that. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, this time in New Living Translation, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness. We were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. What other people think or say about you does not define you. The last thing we're going to look at that does not define you is past mistakes. We have so many people that are just paralyzed by their past. And, and they just can't get beyond their past. We all make mistakes. We all have so-called skeletons in our closet. We all have things that if it came to light and people found out about us, we would be totally horrified that it came to light and that somebody else found out. We all have those things. You can't let that keep you there. Don't stay in the past. Don't dwell on the past. I have a saying that I, that I like to say. I, I, I love this because it's the mindset that I try to live my life by, and it's this. Keep moving forward. Don't stay where you are. Keep moving forward. Even small steps forward are moving forward. Even crawling is moving forward. Keep moving forward. Scripture actually talks about this concept of not being stuck where you are, not letting your past keep you there. Romans 8, um, chapter 8, verse 1, NLT says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So the stuff that's in the past, all those things that happened, the bad things, there's no condemnation anymore. Jesus wiped that away. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, again in New Living Translation, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, forgetting the past, forgetting the past, and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, New Living Translation. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And then 1 Corinthians 6.11. Some of you were once like that. I love that phrase. Some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
So your past mistakes do not define you. Don't let them. They do not define you. All right, so we've seen some things that don't define us, so now we know what not to, what not to do. What does define us? Because there's something that defines us, right? And if it's not any of the things that we've already listed, then what does define you? Well, only our creator can define us. Only, only the creator can define his creation. To this point, we've sort of focused on what I like to call I am statements. I am this, I am that, uh, trying to define ourselves by those I am statements. But that's not where we should be. We should be focusing on God's you are statements. The reason I call them God's you are statements is because this is what God says about you. This is what God says you are. And this is how God defines you. The first of God's you are statements, you are created in the image of God. Don't just scroll on by that and, and, and not think about that because that's huge. And we'll talk in just a moment about what that means. But you are created in the image of God. There's nothing else in creation that was created in the image of God. That's only people. And so that in and of itself is really special. Let's take a look at what that means. Um, there's a term called imago dei, which is created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that's where we really find, um, that that's, the, that's the verses we tend to point to when we say this, and it says this, then God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So scripture tells us way back at the beginning, we were created in the image of God. What does that mean? When I was at Liberty University, uh, one of my theology professors said it this way, and I don't remember which one it was, but I wish I could because, because it was a really profound statement for me. He said that it means that we are glory reflectors of God. He talked about it being similar in some ways, as much as we can be similar with God, to when you look at yourself in the mirror. What does a mirror do? It simply reflects what's there, right? It reflects what's there. So that image in the mirror is not you. It's just a reflection of you. But it's a, it's, it's a likeness of you. And, and you can see it to see what you look like and, and how you look to the rest of the world. Um, that idea of being glory reflectors for God, that other people can see God in us. Almost as if they were looking into a mirror and instead of seeing themselves, they see what God shows and how God shows through us. Glory reflectors. Um, focus on the family. In, in a, an article which was titled, What It Means to Be Made in the Image of God, said this, we believe the image of God is not so much something that man has as something that man is. Humankind was created to be a graphic image of the creator, a formal, visible, and understandable representation of who God is and what he's really like. 
And then John Piper uh, wrote, a, wrote a paper titled The Image of God, and in that he, he wrote this. The imago dei is not a quality possessed by man. It is a condition in which man lives, a condition of confrontation established and maintained by the creator. The man, that man, excuse me, is in the image of God means that man as a whole person, both physically and spiritually, is in some sense like his maker. And even as sinners, we bear God's image. So one of the things that God tells us about him is that you are created in the image of God. You are statement number two. You are loved by God. John 3.16, for this is how God, so, how God loved the world. Excuse me, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, but God showed us great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So you are loved by God. That's what God tells us, that he loves us. And even if you don't feel like you're loved by other people, you're loved by God. That's who you are. You are loved by God. You are statement number three. You are known by God. Jeremiah 1.5 says this, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Psalm 139, we'll read a few verses in there, starting with 1 through 4. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. And then down in verses 13 through 15, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Remember how I said earlier that in order to define something, you have to really understand it? That's God. God knows you better than you know yourself, better than your spouse knows you, better than your family knows you, your friends know you. God knows you. God understands you because he created you. And because he created you and understands you and knows you, he gets to define you. And you are known by God. You are statement number four. You are planned. Now hear this. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident. In fact, when you were born is exactly when God wanted you to be born. Who you were born to, we talked about family of origin. That's exactly where God wanted you to be. That's exactly who he wanted you to be born to. You are planned. You're not a mistake. Psalm 13, verse 6 tells us, You saw me before I was even born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. I'm sure you're familiar with this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. So before creation, before time began, God knew you. God planned you. You are not a mistake. You are planned. 
You are statement number five. Not only are you planned, you are chosen. Ephesians 1.4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Ephesians 1.11, furthermore, because you are united, excuse me, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. That's pretty special to think about the fact that you're chosen by God. So God knows everything about you. You can't hide anything from him. So all that stuff that we talked about, the skeletons in the closet we don't want anyone else to see, God knows that, and he still chooses you. That's pretty darn special. He still chooses us. So you are chosen. Number six, you are wanted. Not only are you chosen, you are wanted. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I would... Would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. So God, Jesus, here speaking, wants us to be with him forever. Revelation 3.20, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. We will share a meal together as friends. So he's trying to initiate a relationship with us. We're wanted. You are wanted. Statement number seven, you are adopted as a child of God. Ephesians 1.5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. In John 1.12, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So not only are we wanted, not only are we chosen, but we're actually adopted into God's family were joint heirs, as Scripture tells us, with Jesus. You are adopted. And then finally, you are redeemed. Amen. Ephesians 1.7, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. Think about, from God's perspective, what happened. God created us. He created man, created Adam and Eve. They sinned. We all have sinned since then. We're all born with that sin nature. We are rebels against God. We are fighting against God. Even through all of that, he chose to buy us back. He, he created us. We we're already his. We were lost because of sin. And then he bought us back. And the price of our freedom was the life of his son, the life and blood of Jesus. And that was the price that he paid to redeem us, to buy us back. Galatians 3.13 says, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. So he took all of our sins upon himself so that then they could be forgiven. And that was his, his redeeming of us. So you are redeemed. So we talked a little bit about the I am statements, and the I am statements tend to typically be the things that don't really define us. God's you are statements. So now, let's, look, let's, let's take instead of those old I am statements, let's take God's you are statements and turn those into our new I am statements. So I am created in the image of God. I am loved by God. I am known by God. I am planned. 
I am chosen. I am wanted. I am adopted as a child of God. I am redeemed. That's your definition. That's what defines you. Those I am statements that we get directly from God, that's what defines you. Let's watch this. Just